So we're doing good tonight, everybody? Wonderful. Make sure you are sitting at a table with other people. Uh, looks like everyone is, so we're ready to go. Uh, welcome to winter in Southern California. This is as cold as it's probably ever going to get, but uh, we're very grateful for that. Uh, I, I remember one time I was walking across the Brooklyn Bridge, and I was colder than I've ever been before. I, it was uh, zero degrees Fahrenheit, which maybe isn't that bad, you know. I've been in colder temperatures before. I'd been in uh, 33 below in Chicago, you know, in a place where you, you exit the train and then automatically your, your nostrils, your nose hairs just turn into icicles. It's a really weird uh, phenomenon, but I actually felt colder in New York City on the Brooklyn Bridge than I did in Chicago because it's a different type of cold. It was like the, the coldness was just trickling into my bones and marrow. It was a, a wet cold. And I remember uh, I was walking across the Brooklyn Bridge with Stephen Katawaki. He's one of the guys who plays bass here on Sunday morning. His wife is on staff. She does all the Facebook, tech, video stuff that we do here at Journey. Her name's Kate. But I, I, was, I was talking to Stephen as we were walking across the Brooklyn Bridge, freezing. We were layered up. And, and I say, man, I am cold as hell. And now when you hear that phrase... You know, we've heard that before, but maybe we're like, well, I've also heard the phrase hot as hell. So like, is hell cold or is hell hot? Like what's, I don't really plan on finding out. Uh, but the, the great Italian poet, Dante Alighieri, he says that it's cold. Maybe you've heard of this individual, Dante, who poetically imagines the lowest, deepest circle of hell as cold. Ice, actually. Here at the ninth circle, Satan is portrayed as a winged, three-faced, giant demon, frozen mid-breast in ice. And now here at the lowest level of hell in his uh, poetry called the Divine Comedy, Inferno, uh, Satan beats his wings and creates a cold wind that continues to freeze the ice that's surrounding him and the other wretched, worst of the worst sinners, those charged with treachery. And in his three mouths, he's continually munching on three famous individuals, Judas, Cassius and Brutus. Et tu, Brute. Et tu, Brute. The famous last words of a dying man, Julius Caesar. In English, the Latin phrase, et tu, Brute, means something like, and you, Brutus? Or even you, Brutus? On March 15th, 44 BC, Julius Caesar, the Roman dictator, was attacked by a group of senators, including Gaius, Cassius, Longinus, and of course, Marcus Junius Brutus, Caesar's closest friend. Caesar initially resisted his attackers, but when he saw Brutus, he spoke these words, et tu, Brute. And he resigned himself to his fate, assassinated by those closest to him, murdered at the hands 
of his best friend. Et tu, Brute, are the words of a heart broken by betrayal. And tonight, we will encounter a story that takes place some 80 years after the betrayal of Julius Caesar. Tonight, we will encounter a story of great betrayal, but also a story of great denial. So what I want to do is open up some table talk to begin with. Talk to the people at your table around you and answer the following question. Would you rather be betrayed or denied? And why? Go ahead. All right, let's finish the thought. Who said uh, they would, just raise your hand, who said they would rather be betrayed? Who said they'd rather be denied? Forget you. I'm just kidding. It's, it's a lose-lose situation, right? It's a lose-lose situation. Would you rather be betrayed or denied? Well, tonight, Jesus gets both. As Dustin spoke about last week in the Gospel of John, in chapter 13, we have this this image of Jesus becoming like a slave, like a servant. And he washes the nasty feet of his disciples. And now as we pick it up, as we continue with John 13, there's a striking turn of events as 13 continues. So let's stand and read our first verse in our passage tonight. Chapter 13, verse 21. It says, now Jesus was deeply troubled. And he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Let's pray. Lord, as we see you troubled in your spirit here, we want to look at our lives tonight and see Are there areas where we are betraying you? Are there areas where we are denying you? Where we are lacking in our love for you and for others? Jesus, we want to talk about you and know you and experience you, not as some distant reality or some distant person or some idea or concept, but that you're like right here in the room. That's how we want to experience you because that's, that's how we know you are. Your Holy Spirit is here. We just sang and praised and worshiped you. We sang about how great you are. And we want to love you just like that. So in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I want you to just imagine for a moment that you are, say, like sitting at a a table with some of your closest friends here. And you're sitting at a table with your closest friends, friends that you have been with for, I don't know, say the last three years or so, every day and every night. You've come to know them very well. Like they know what makes you tick. They know what makes you frustrated. They understand the ins and outs of who you are. And you guys have developed this friendship, this close relationship over the past three years or so, spending day and night, day and night. When all of a sudden, 
here at the table, someone across from you is troubled and says, one of you will betray me. You might feel a little uh, shocked. You might feel perplexed. You might feel saddened or angry. Or maybe you might be guilty. This is what verse 22 says. The disciples, they looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. Now, one of them, they might have been shocked. One of them might have been perplexed. One of them might have been saddened. One of them might have been angry. One of them might have been guilty. Verse 23 says, The disciple Jesus loved, perhaps John, son of Zebedee, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Well, not really sitting because the Greek actually talks about them reclining. There's a, there's a picture from the movie, the Gospel of, of John, which literally goes through word by word the Gospel according to John in a video format. It, it shows here the normal first century practice of eating a meal in this semi-reclining position. And the disciple that Jesus loved, also known as John, son of Zebedee, was in a semi-reclining position next to Jesus at the table. That's a position of honor. Verse 24 says, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, John, a.k.a. beloved disciple, son of Zebedee, who's he talking about? Well, where's Peter seated at the table here? We don't really know. It's not very clear, but it appears that he's not next to Jesus. Or else why would he be asking John to say, what's he talking about? Maybe, let's entertain that thought for just a moment. Maybe he is seated next to Jesus and he's just kind of like afraid to ask Jesus. So he's like winking at John or he's like doing hand motions. John, like you ask. It's possible but I think soon we will see that what's even more possible is that there's actually someone else seated in a semi-reclining position on Jesus' other side. I think it's more probable that Peter is positioned elsewhere, somewhere else at the table. And John, also known as a beloved disciple, follows Peter's pushing here. And verse 25 says, So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Now, I don't know if the conversations had resumed at this point or if it was so silent that you could hear a, a pin drop. We don't know that from reading the text. But verse 26, Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread I dip into the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. I think it's entirely possible that Judas is seated on the left side of Jesus. He's evidently in a position where Jesus can actually hand him a piece of bread dipped in the bowl. 
And now I don't know if the conversations at this point had resumed or I don't know if you could have heard a, a pin drop because it was so silent. But I think as the text unfolds, it's likely that Jesus is speaking to John and motioning to Judas without being overheard by the rest of the group. We'll come to see that. But verse 27a says, when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. You know, this is the only time in the gospel of John when the name Satan, when he's mentioned by that name, Satan. Only time we see it in the gospel of John. Satan, the devil, the enemy had already prompted or provoked Judas to betray Jesus. Back in John 13, verse 2. Satan, the devil, the enemy had already, this is what the Greek says, beblekatas estein cardia. Satan, the devil, the enemy had already placed or dropped or cast into the heart into the heart of Judas that he should betray Jesus. Yeah, but they say, follow your heart. I know it in my heart. I have my heart set on it, or my heart is in the right place. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The human heart, the human heart, is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Maybe Judas followed his heart too much. Maybe Judas knew it in his heart too absolute. Maybe Judas had his heart set on it too fully. Or maybe Judas had his heart in the right place too self-confidently. John 13, 2 tells us how Satan, the devil, the enemy had already put the idea of betrayal into the heart of Judas. And here in John 13, 27, Judas comes under the influence of Satan more completely and finally. Temptation it comes from Satan. It comes from the world. And according to, to James chapter 1, verse 14 from our own sinful desires and cravings. So let's do some table talk to break this down a little bit. How do we balance? How do we balance following what we feel in our hearts and what we think in our minds? So should we just do like whatever we feel or should we just do whatever we think? In other words, how should we live or behave? in our emotive, in other words, emotion-driven slash cognitive thought or knowledge-driven human nature. We are all both emotive, we have emotions, and we also are cognitive. We have thoughts, we have our mind, we are able to conceptualize things. How do we balance the two? You understand? Nod if you're understanding the question. Got it. Go ahead. Talk to the people around you.
All right, let's bring it back together here. So the question, if you guys had uh, some trouble figuring it out, is like, how do, how do we balance what's up here and also like what's in here? What drives us, like our thoughts and also our emotions or our actions? And now I know that our thoughts and our emotions are both contained within our head and somehow in our heart as well. Um, but I would say, if I would say anything, is that we need both. We need the emotional, we also need the cognitive. But in everything that we do, whether it's a decision where I need to think to do something or act to do something in an in a emotional way, is that we need to wash it all through Scripture. We need to, to soak everything in Scripture, everything we're thinking and everything that we're doing. And so in order to do that, we need to open up our Bibles. We need to bring our Bibles. We need to keep them with us, whether it's on your phone or, or whether it's a, a hard copy in front of you. We need to wash everything through Scripture. We need to know Scripture so that it becomes part of who we are and understanding everything that, that we can do with that. And then we also have to wash it through our experience with who God is. Who God is throughout our experience with him and also with the community of believers. And now this is really important where you come to someone, you're like, man, I had this thought. Am I just like way off base? Or I have this feeling like, is there something wrong with me? Or I am I, you know, feeling something that's, it's true. You know, when we don't do this, we end up in a lot of trouble. I hope and pray that we don't get so cognitive, so thought and knowledge driven that we think our, our ways out of following Jesus. And I also hope and pray that we don't get so emotive, so emotionally driven that we follow our hearts into making bad decisions like betraying Jesus. As Judas did. In verse 27b through 28, we continue. Then Jesus told him, that is to Judas, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. That's why I think it's probable that the conversations had resumed and that the whole handing the bread dipped in the bowl scene went unnoticed by the disciples, that is, Apart from John. Verse 29, since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. That's why I think it's probable that the conversations had resumed and the whole handing the bread dipped in the bowl scene went unnoticed by the disciples, that is, apart from John. They don't know who the betrayer is. They don't know about the bread dipped in the bowl. They don't know why, Jesus, why Judas is told, hurry and do what you're going to do. Verse 30 says, so Judas left at once, going out into the night. It may not seem like much there, that verse. So Judas left at once, going out, into the night, but this verse is a huge indicator. First of all, there's the significance of dark versus light 
in the gospel of John. At the beginning of the gospel of John, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, the light is, is bright, it's brilliant, it, it's beaming. It says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and the light brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. But over the course of 13 chapters that we've been through so far, the light seems to be diminishing. It seems to be lessening. And now it's night. But the comment is more than just a time indicator. With Judas going out into the night, it sets in motion the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the death. Of Jesus. Daytime is over, night has come, and unfortunately, Judas has become one who walked by night and stumbled because the light was not in him. This is when it gets real. This is when we enter into the passion. This is also the part where I'm like, man, this part. I really liked the beginning when Jesus is like doing all these miracles and taking wine out of, you know, some stone pitchers at a wedding. You know, as he's healing people, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. And then we come to this. This is when it gets for real. Verse 31 says, as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory and God will be glorified because of him. But the glory that Jesus is talking about himself entering into, it means crucifixion, his glory. You know, today we, we often think about the glory that, that superstars have or celebrities or sports stars or whoever. Oh, it's so glorious. And the glory that's just around them and their entourage. Jesus' glory and entering into it means crucifixion. And how ironic. Jesus will soon be crowned, but with a crown of thorns. Jesus will soon be lifted high and enthroned, but his throne will be a cross. And when we talk about the crucifixion and all that comes with it, we often tend to focus on the blood and the gore and, and the, the cross and the aspects of the pain and the guilt, often at the expense of perhaps seeing the even deeper cutting wounds of shame and betrayal and denial. But that's the glory that Jesus is talking about. The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. That is his passion, his crucifixion, the horrific experiences of betrayal and denial. And God will be glorified because of him. 
verse 32 through 35 says, And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going because I'm going to die. I'm going to taste and see and experience death. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Smack dab in the face of his imminent betrayal. Jesus has the audacity. He has the boldness here to command his followers to do the same, to love, to love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. The love that Jesus has for his disciples, for his followers, it must be replicated in the lives of his followers. It must be shown in a way that they sacrificially serve one another to death, if necessary. Yeah, but where is that in the church today? Where is that in the church today? What does it say? So I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciple. Where is that in the church today? I, I see it. I see glimpses of it. I really do. Yeah, I've been to churches before where it's like no one even shakes your hand when you walk through. They're like, here, <laughs> take your bulletin, go sit down. No one talks to you. No one loves you. No one hugs you. Uh, I've heard of people leaving this church, multiple people leaving this church because people loved them too much. <laughs> I think that's awesome, you know. <laughs> I think that's awesome. You guys do a great job of loving people. You thought I was going to harp on you about, like, not loving? You know, I mean, man, I feel so loved. I, I, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but um, October uh, is uh, Pastor's Appreciation Month. And, uh, you know, I think I got tagged in a post on Facebook or something like that. That was cool, you know. I'm not asking for it because, honestly, every Wednesday and every Sunday and almost every day feels like Pastor Appreciation here at Journey. I have to be honest with you, you know. You know, I was stoked one year. They, they, they made us like a, a cake or something. It was a Bible cake. And they gave me a box of Lucky Charms. I was like, this is awesome. I am set. But to, to experience what we experience here, I'm just speaking for myself. Now, I'll speak for everyone on staff. We love you and we feel loved by you. Uh, and I'm grateful. I mean, today or yesterday, like, uh, there's a, a wreath cross on our doorstep from Mila and Burton, you know. I mean, people bring food, people love, people serve, people help. I mean, John Urango's checking on my heat in, in the attic yesterday. And he's trying to figure out what's wrong or what's not working. And, and like, people love us so much. And I feel like that is unique to Journey. It's woven into the fabric of who we are. And there's always room to grow, right? 
You know, I, I see that in the church today, and I, I see glimpses of it. I really do, but sometimes I'm left searching for it, mainly in my own life. Mainly in my own life where it's like, why don't I want to love like I should? Why don't I care like I really should? Well, it's because I'm being selfish. But it's not an option. It's not a choice. It's not a choice. We don't get that choice. It's a commandment. That's what Jesus says. He commands it. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Therefore, when I don't, I'm not only disobeying, I'm like Judas. I'm betraying. I'm betraying Jesus and my allegiance to him. So let's do some talk. How can we love each other better? How can we love each other better? And what can we do so that our love for one another will prove to the world that we are disciples of Jesus? All right, let's close it up. I hope that you came up with some uh, real tangible, practical ways that we can love one another and ways that this would be evident to the people around you. You know, followers of Jesus should love each other with such intensity and such ferocity that the world is left without a doubt that these people truly are disciples of Jesus. There's a special friendship that I have with a couple of guys, uh, Jeffrey O'Dell, Bonesaw Barnett, uh, a guy named Noah Johnson, another guy named Sam Strader. And we had this stupid name for ourselves, the Strands. And uh, it comes from Ecclesiastes, which talks about a, a, a strand of three woven together cannot be easily broken. And there were four of us. We thought we were like super, super duty, you know. We made these stupid packs with one another, like, yeah, we're never going to go into Hooters or something like that, you know. Like, it's, it's smart though, right? You know, it's a good idea. You know, we want to follow Jesus. Uh, we made this, like, promise, we're not going to go to Hooters and other stuff. But uh, <laughs> it's stupid. But uh, anyways, uh, we uh, were hanging out with a lot of non-Christians, and uh, there was a group of, of guys, we call them bad boys, and they were non-Christians. And I remember one time, you know, they're like, I, I can't believe, like, how, how much you guys love each other, you know? And I'm like, what? We just, like, make fun of each other all the time, you know, and just joke around and tease each other and play pranks on each other, all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, but you can switch it off in just a moment. You can switch it off and you deeply care for one another and the way that you joke and the way that you love, the way you laugh, you know. And I see that. That's among the staff that we have here. Like we meet at Starbucks and just yesterday we're, we're having our staff meeting and enjoying time together, making fun of each other, laughing, whatever it is. All in good fun. And uh, then Jeff uh, goes to the bathroom or whatever and he's always has to say hi to everybody in there. And there's some guy like sitting by himself and he's like, hi, you know, like Jeff does when he first sees somebody. And, uh, right, you've experienced that before with Jeff, right? And uh, the guy's like, are you guys like a church or something? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like, how did he know that we were a church? Maybe he's a Christian. Maybe he saw us praying or whatever. But, like, the love that we had hopefully is made evident. 
My favorite part of church, literally, I love the worship. I love, you know, the messages. I love, you know, when we hang out. But my favorite part of church is before it all starts. And I don't mean the setup and teardown. I don't like that. But I mean the, when people trickle in, especially people who show up early, and I get to walk around the rows and just talk to people. That's my favorite part because a lot of those people are new. And a lot of those people, yeah, you said hi to them. Like we had like two or three different places where they get hit with people. Or like, hi, how are you? Let me give you a hug. Let me, you know. But then when they come in here, they can just kind of be by themselves, right? And then it seems like everything else is going on and they're still alone until the meet and greet time. But that's my favorite part, to go and meet people. But I'm only one person. And I think it would be awesome if the church, all of us, would do the same. Because it's great to go meet people out there and that's, we need that, that's really good. But when they come in here, they still need to be part of the fellowship, part of the love that's going on here. So I would encourage us, go around and talk to people. Go get to know them. If you don't know what to say, just like, hey, what's your name? Or where are you from? Or how are you doing today? Or just come up with some questions. What are you doing for Christmas? What are you doing for Thanksgiving? Just come up with like a list of questions that you could ask people. And maybe you could meet a a best friend. Maybe you could fall in love. Maybe you could, I don't know, whatever. Uh, But anyways, Simon Peter, verse 36, asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. Again, he's talking about his death. He's talking about crucifixion. A crucifixion that Peter himself will also experience. But the traditional view is that Peter was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same fashion and manner as his Lord. But verse 37 says, But why can't I come now, Lord? He, that is Peter, asked. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Would you rather be betrayed or denied? Betrayal and denial, two of the most horrific human experiences ever to endure and Jesus will experience each at the hands of two individuals who are closest to him. Our passage tonight ends on a bitter note, but it leaves us with a face-to-face that we have to engage in. Does my life show betrayal and denial of Jesus? Or does my life show love? Real, true, commanded, sacrificial love. I want to leave us with a a few words from our famous Italian poet, Dante Alighieri. Love insists, the love loves back. I had to read this like four or five times over before it made sense, so I'll read it again. Love insists that the loved loves back. Love insists the loved loves back. 
Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for hearing us and knowing us and caring about us. Lord, even the the depths of our hearts, you search and examine our secret motives. You really know who we truly are. And somehow you still love us. But we don't want to take that for granted. We want to love you back. We truly want to be your disciples and we want the world to know the love that you have for us is the same love that you have for them. Help us not to betray you. Help us not to deny you. Help us to love you and serve you and give all that we are for you and for your kingdom. And I know that starts with loving the people around us more than we maybe do now. So help us, show us the ways, show us the people that we need to spend extra time, extra care, and extra love with this week. We love you and we praise you. I thank you, Lord, for all these people. In Jesus' name, amen.